Hello, welcome to Rising Above Shadows of Abuse, Raza, with Grace of Ham. Chiamakada Pius is a humanitarian, a social worker who is passionate about making a difference in a community by running a back-to-school initiative for underprivileged and dropouts, especially females, as a way of creating gender equity. Over 50 girls have benefited from this initiative in northern Nigeria. He has achieved significant changes in transforming or challenging established systems by advocating for justice, participating in campaigns, collaborating with other NGOs and other civil society to create change, designing and implementing developmental projects centered around quality education as a way of reorientation against societal and cultural bias. It also reduces inequality, gender equality, peace, justice and strong institutions. The main issue our work is trying to solve is changing the mindset of individuals, especially females through education, mental reorientation and awareness of individuals in order to live above biases and prejudice formed by cultures and traditions, extreme religious dogmas, societal ills and discrimination. An example of this is her participation as a leader in the ongoing Rise Up project by Public Health Institute, Oakland for Women and Girls. Her work also extends to attempting to solve problems in rehabilitation and reintegration of ex-convicts through prison outreach, participation in the Criminal Justice Reform Act, educational support programs, business and skills empowerment and referral service. This is done through the TOCO, Take Them Out and Keep Them Out program of over 1,300 ex-prisoners known as returning citizens, done by her organization, Ed Spring International Outreach. This is a way of showing support and love to inmates and ex-convicts. This is done through campaigns, advocacy and leadership programs, collaboration, sensitization and workshops, educational programs, community outreach, stakeholder engagement, project design and implementation. And as a humanitarian, she's done lots of volunteering and community outreach for the Nigerian Red Cross Society, where she renders humanitarian services and gains better knowledge through online developmental courses and trainings. She also did Be My Eyes, an online platform where she helps visually impaired individuals in their daily tasks since 2019 till date. She's involved with the Chainmakers Empowerment Initiative NGO, where she volunteered from 2015 to 2018 and gained her first work experience in social work, field work, environmental sanitation, orphanage visitation and rural outreach. She is a member of Nigerian Association of Social Workers, International Society for Substance Use Professionals, Young African Leaders Initiative, Nigeria Red Cross Society, and International Society for Public Health. Her future ambition is to own a shelter or a refuge with all the necessary infrastructures where destitutes, the abused, the homeless, and marginalized individuals, especially women, can live, enjoy basic amenities, have good welfare and well-being, all for free in order to create an inclusive and balanced society. 
She believes empathy is a quality every global leader should possess. Good evening, Chiamaka. Could you kindly tell us a bit about yourself and what made you go into social work and working with women who have suffered uh, domestic violence? Thank you for having me here. It's a pleasure. I am a social worker and currently a programs manager with EdSpring International Outreach. For me, I went into social work and the development sector because it gives me the avenue to be able to speak out for those who are marginalized, to work with women who are going through issues of violence, abuse, marginalization. It also helps me contribute my own quota in the development sector because currently I'm one of the Rise Up leaders for public health institutes on women and girls' rights, education. And it has given me this opportunity that I also run personally as an individual, I run a back to school initiative for women, dropouts on the privileged girls, because I know that education is one of the basics to fight abuse of all sorts. Education makes you aware as a woman and keeps you informed. So it has been like a passion for me and that made me go back to school to study social work. My first degree was economics, but I went back to UN and study social work just so I could not only carry out my passion, but be professionally aware of social issues in society and how to help, how to intervene, how to go about them. So that's who I am and that's what I do. So you are like um, a forerunner for women who have um, gone through a lot of um, abuse, so to speak. Yes, so everybody that knows me knows that I am a woman's advocate. Like, you can't say wrong about a woman in front of me and go free. I will not let you do that. <laughs> That's very <quite> interesting. <laughs> yeah, everybody knows me. Ah. So we have similarities then. Yeah. So why do you think um, women don't leave abusive relationships? Is it the culture? Is it low self-esteem? Is it a psychological thing? Is it lack of security in terms of, oh, how am I going to fund uh, myself and the children if they leave the abusive marriage? And is it the upbringing? Can you elaborate okay. more on this, please? All right, most women, First of all, when we talk about abusive relationships, most women don't even know they're in abusive relationships to when the ships are down. Why? Because society, culture, of course, patriarchy. Let me use that word. Yeah, that's it. Has made it look normal. So most women have, most women, especially in the African culture, Nigeria, most women grew up in cultural environments and families where they actually saw abuse as the norm. Take, for instance, a woman who has the mental orientation that even after she goes to school, it is not her duty to fend for the family or contribute in any way. She sees it as normal when she gets married and the husband says, sit at home, take care of my kids, 
a woman has no place in the office, but at home, in the bedroom, in the kitchen. You know, that is a very high level of economic abuse, but most women do not know. So I think I will always say thanks to feminists and advocates, lots of NGOs who have lately been speaking on the need for women to work, to be empowered, because you find that any society where women are not represented, it's, it's really like a dark society. And, you know, it is, it's this trend of advocacy that has made women know that, yes, it's actually dangerous for me to just sit down at home and not work. Because the highest form of abuse as a woman is when you get to the point where you are obviously helpless but you would rather die in that situation than walk away because there is a fear of the unknown. The fear of how do I take care of my kids? How do I face the society? So a lot of women find it hard to leave abusive marriages and relationships because of the stigma they are faced with from religious bodies, from communities, from their families, from the society. You know, there's this fear of the unknown. They're like, how do I start? And because lots of them, we are in marriages where they were not empowered or allowed to be empowered economically, they are scared. They are scared, how do I start? Where do I start from? Also, a lot of women, there's this, um, what I call it family pattern, upbringing. Some of them actually do not want to leave or cannot leave. We had lots of female children, women, who saw their mothers go through abuse, domestic violence, and abuse of all sorts, and still stayed in the marriage, think it is normal. So for them, where do they go to? This is normal. This is what their mothers went through. This is what the normal marriage is to them. So they will stick their heads there and say they are staying because of their kids. They always make their statements because of my children. Forgetting that they are raising damaged children who would also replicate it to their spouse in the future. Do you understand that point? Yes, that's quite so important. It's actually, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's like a repeated a cycle. Problem. It's a yes, repeated it's a cycle. cycle. It's a very vicious cycle. Mm-hmm. And so many people have found themselves and they actually think it's normal. And because they've seen such things and think it's normal, there's this low self-esteem. There's a lack of confidence. They don't even know what the truth is. Because they grew up in that. So they think it's normal. Also, there's also a fear for those who even want to leave. There is a fear. There's this fear for lack of protection by agencies. Like you see, in most cases, when some people even make attempts to report issues of violence and abuse to the police, the police always tell you that, ah, madam, na family matter, na husband and wife matter. It's private. Police know they put mouth for that. You know, such things, instead of coming to the aid of these victims. And it's actually very disappointing. Like most people actually say, oh, what would the police do for me? Actually, if I go there, they tell me it's a family matter. And then some women are not even aware. Some women, because they're not working, they're not economically empowered, they view, if I go, how do I take care of my kids? They're not even aware that there are agencies like the Ministry of the Social Welfare who can actually get the man to take care of these children while they're away from the marriage. So a lot of women, a lot of issues, most women are not even aware of the, of the, of the um, customary law that states that your child stays with you till 
they are 18 and then they can choose who they want to stay with, except the woman is mentally unable to take care of the children or some sort of issues. Most of them do not even know of this. So they are, they are intimidated with the lack of economic empowerment. Some of them are intimidated with child custody and welfare, all those issues. They don't know. They're not aware. So there's the a lack of awareness. Yes. But to me, the most important of all this is the lack of mental strength. Because there's also the category of women who know all this, who know that they can walk away and all that. They know even where to go to, but they lack the mental strength to come out of it. There's this, they lack the mental will, the capacity to come out and face the society. So for some women, they lack the mental capacity to come out of an abusive marriage. Because there's this fear of, will I ever get married again? Can I find love again? The stigma of society, the whole process of divorce, child custody, welfare, and all that. They actually lack the mental strength to come out and face life. But what they do not understand is that as much as these stigmas and barriers are there, it's only for a while. Society will still adjust to meet you at, at your point. They do not understand that it's actually better to come out, be alive, in good health, take care of your kids, than to be in a marriage that traumatizes you and can even lead to your death. So those are some of the issues. While some are not even aware of their rights, a lot, cultural, the, the cultural part is there, the cultural bias, the, the culture that people think it's normal to just endure it all through society, there are lots of them. So these are some of the issues why women find it hard to leave. In the case of late Osinachi Unwachuku, her husband, Peter Unwachuku, has been charged with culpable homicide after, yeah. after assaulting her severally, which led to her death. Culpable homicide, contrary to Section 221 of the Penal Code, which is punishable by hanging. He was also charged under Section 104 and Section 379 of the Administration of Criminal Justice. That is the Administration of Criminal Justice Act 2015 by the Attorney General of the Federation of Nigeria. My question to you now is what is the penal code? I, I think a lot of people actually do not understand the difference in the penal code and the criminal code. So let me explain what the penal code is. So the penal code is actually practiced in the northern part of Nigeria. While the criminal act code is used in the south. Do you understand? Yeah. So how do I, okay, let me expantiate it more. Like when you talk about the penal code, it was actually enacted in 1959, yes, based on the Sudan penal code. There was this issue of in 1916, when with the colonization that came and all that, there was actually a criminal code in 1916 that was brought by, I think, Macaulay. What's his name? Um, Herbert Macaulay. Mm, it was, yeah, 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 by Macaulay. Lord Macaulay, yes. Lord Macaulay. Was brought okay. by Lord Macaulay. Okay. Yeah. So, but 
section four of it was amended in 1933. And it actually allowed native courts. I don't know, you understand what it means by native courts, right? Customary courts, Of yeah. each region. It allowed yes. native courts of each region to try cases, to try, um, um, how do I call it? To try um, people that had gone against the law. But there was a restriction in punishment that was to be in accordance with the 1916 criminal code that was brought in by Lord Macaulay. Do you understand? Yeah. So there was a bit of sentiment about it and it wasn't in fact the northern part of nigeria said no we don't to us this isn't convenient it's not it's not acceptable by us because it doesn't align with the islamic community do you understand yes and so because of this the penal code was now introduced for the northern region where the southern region kept the criminal code so is the, is the penal code likened to Sharia law? It is not exactly, it's not likened. I won't use the word likened. But the penal code is actually, the, the laws of the penal code were made in relation to the cultures, traditions, and customs of the North and their religion. Do you understand? Yeah. But you can't say it is a Sharia law. Because it's a federal law, do you understand? Okay. Yeah, so that's what the penal code is about. When you're hearing of Peter Nwachiko's case, they use the word culpable homicide. Yeah. If he was in the South, it would have been attempted murder or even murder. But because the penal code is embedded in the penal code as culpable homicide, and of course, he's resident in the North. Abuja is the northern part of Nigeria. Do you understand? So... That's how it relates. Like it relates mainly to not to the northern part of Nigeria and its residents. So for me, the southern part, I would say I said it before, we use the criminal code. So if you're asking if it is contradictory, for me, I would say it is not only contradictory, but it's actually a very discriminatory law that is in force. Discriminatory in the sense that it is one of those laws that do not support the cause of women. It doesn't support the cause of women because most of the laws have been identified over time to enable violence against women. So I'll give you two instances, like the section 55, subsection 1, subsection D of the penal code. It states that assault by a man on a woman is not an offense if they are married. That's if the man is married to the woman, he can actually assault her. Do you not see why I say it is a discriminatory law in force? Yes, I do. Secondly, the same law states that it is not also an offense if the native law or customs recognize such correction. Okay, so I said it's actually a discriminatory law and examples of these discriminations against women in the code is in section 55, subsection one, subsection D of the penal code. It says that a man can assault a woman if they are married though. Are you hearing one? Mm -hmm. If the native law or custom recognizes such 
as correction and as lawful. And if there is no grievous hurt, do you now see why it is called a discriminatory law in force? Yes. Because you are now trying to, what this law is saying is that the perpetrators of abuse can actually get away with it. Because now it is now being termed a means of correction. Do you understand? Yes, I do. It's now because it's saying if the native law or customs recognizes such correction, not even such assault, such correction as lawful, and if there is no grievous hurt. So in essence, they're objectifying women as cattles or animals. That can be corrected. That can be corrected. Do you now understand it? Yes. Another example is Section 282 of the Penal Code. Mm -hmm. It discusses rape and specifies that sexual intercourse by a man with his wife is not rape if she, the wife, has gone through puberty. So what that is trying to say, in essence, is that there is no issue of consent as long as the man is married to the woman and she has gone through puberty. Whether she's in the mood or she's not in the mood is not called rape. He should just have his way when he wants to have it. Do you see another discriminatory law in force? There are quite archaic laws, actually. Exactly. That need, they need to be rectified. They need to be rectified. Exactly. And there's actually no penalty because in this case, when there is no issue of consent, where are you talking about penalty or rape? So they get away with it. A woman is seen as an object that whenever you want, whether she's in the mood, oh, she's not in the mood, oh, she's healthy, she's not healthy. As long as you want it, you get it, and it is not rape. You don't even need her consent. So it's actually a very discriminatory law in force. But you, you, you see that most times you cannot talk about this law without relating it to the laws and customs of the Northern region. Do you understand? So that is what the penal code is about. There, there should be actually a judicial review to rectify some of these uh, code, uh, code, penal code yes. laws or whatever the code, you know, it's not really serving um, women, like you said, it's quite discriminatory and needs to be scrapped, actually. If I were to write about um, change, changes in the law, it needs to be scrapped. It needs to. It really, really needs to be scrapped. Not just amended, but it needs to be scrapped because that's why when you, you, you try to carry out research most times on issues of domestic violence, gender-based violence in Nigeria, you find out that even with the World Health Amnesty and the rest of them, United Nations, they all state that one out of three Nigerian women have been abused, not just by anybody, but by their spouse. And then you keep wondering... There are lots of organizations that are handling these issues. What are the issues? Why is it still like there's no nothing being done about it? It's because there are actually laws that are backing them up. So the perpetrators can easily get away with it. So indirectly, uh, the, my next question was to say, does the law protect perpetrators of victims of abuse? So in essence, with what you just explained to me, it means the penal code is protecting perpetrators and not the victims of abuse. Exactly. It's actually protecting the perpetrators. 
even more than it should protect the victims. If you look at Nigerian law, you find that there are no specific laws in Nigeria enacted against domestic violence throughout the Federation. There are no specific laws. They are only in some parts of Nigeria. That's why I said there are no specific laws in Nigeria. Because when you want to say that there are specific laws, it means in every part of Nigeria, it's a law that is in force, it's in use. Yeah, so what we have is the VAP law, which was enacted in 2015. That's Violence Against Persons Prohibition. It was enacted in 2015, but it's only in a few states like Lagos, Ekiti, Anambra, Imo states, Oyo, Bauchi, Enugu, Ebony state, just those few states. Then there's also the Protection Against Domestic Violence Law, which is only in Lagos. That one was passed in 2007. So it's as good as saying, is it only applicable in one state? Because if this Protection Against Domestic Violence Law, which is only in Lagos, it's as good as saying it's not really a law that is being domesticated because we have like 36 states plus the FCT. So what happens to other women in other states where these laws have not been enacted? Do you understand? There's also the Matrimonial Causes Act, section 16, subsection 1, subsection E, that allows you, or let me say, allows one to petition for divorce if the husband or wife has been convicted, that's he has to be first convicted of inflicting grievous harm or hurt. Do you understand? Mm -hmm. Or an attempt to kill the spouse. And then you now find that this act, this matrimonial causes act, is only applicable to those who are married under the act. So if you're married only traditionally, it doesn't apply to you. And then it only applies to divorce. Divorce is the only solution with this law in place because it, it doesn't even protect the victim of violence, do you understand, or domestic abuse. It just states divorce in the case of abuse. So you now find that there are actually no strong laws to protect victims of abuse. That's why the perpetrators can do it and get away with it. Except you're lucky to be in states where the VAP law and the, PA, the PADVL law is functional. You may just not get justice. So can you tell me if you've had um, cases whereby some women have left their abusive relationship? Like a yeah, study. And why yeah, some had... are not willing to? I know you've talked about I've it. I've had everyone. a few cases where very few cases where some women were bold enough to walk away. And those women, I think, okay, like one of the cases I handled, it was a case of extreme violence and child marriage. She said she was actually given out in marriage by her parents, I think at age 16, 17 or so. But I met her when she was 22. I handled that case last year in one of the rural communities. So I, I actually met her on the day I went to the market. I saw her wrapped in bruises, like 
You could see the bruises all over her body. So I walked up to her and I said to her, sorry, my name is Chamak. I introduced myself, said I'm a social worker and I'd like to talk to you for a minute. At first, you know, there's this fear that these victims have. She was like, that her husband is waiting for her. She has to hurry home that he doesn't allow her to stay outside and talk to people. That was an indicator for me that she was under abuse. At first, I even felt she was a trafficked victim because most times when you see people who are scared to relate with outsiders, it's actually there's, it's, it's either there's someone watching from somewhere or something. So, but somehow I said, okay, no problem. I just allowed her, I greeted her and she left. I said, can I have your number? She said she didn't have a phone. I said, it's fine. I just greeted her. I said, what's your name? And she told me, I let her go. Then after she had gone a distance, I tried to follow her to know where she was going to. I, I, it was quite a distance, but I was able to get the compound where she was staying. I was sure she didn't know I was following her. And then I think the next day or two days after, I went to that area and I asked a few people around that area about her, mentioned her name and described her. And luckily I met a lady there who told me about her. Said the man always, the man will go out, drink, come back and bounce on her, beat her and all that. She even had a little baby. So I got interested in that case. So what I did was once in a while, when I'm passing, I couldn't just go to her house because she didn't know me. I tried to make sure that when I'm passing there, I will try to see if she's outside and I will just greet her just to establish that hello, hi. And then over time, I think after like a week or two like that, after constantly greeting her and the rest, I saw her again in the market. And then that day at least she could talk to me as someone that she felt was living in that area, even though she didn't know my mission. So I tried to establish a bit of communication with her and I said, I, I feel you have some issues. You need someone to confide in. I would like to help you in any way I can. And then she said eh, that she's fine. She doesn't have any issue. I said, no, all is not well. So I was able to do a lot of findings and I found out her husband beats her and he's a drunk and all that. And then she broke down in tears. I asked her, give me your number. She said she didn't have a phone that the husband doesn't let her communicate even with her family. <clears throat> so at that point, I said, for what? And she just said, I will not understand. I said, okay, no problem, later. So another day I was passing, I saw her, I called her, I greeted her. And I just, I gave her some provisions. So I just felt like giving you a gift. I got it for you. She said, okay, thank you. And like that, subsequently, I tried to establish a bit of relationship to at least get her open up to me. And then over time, she was able to open up to me. And then she told me her ordeal, how he came to her village and all that. She's from a very poor home. They didn't have money to send her to school. And he made promises of how he would send her to school and all that, how he was working in and so place, only for her to come there and find out. She stays in a one-bedroom. They will come back in the night and at times beat her. And when he's leaving for work, 
most times she says she he would drop like 500 for her 200 to use and eat and what would that do for an adult he didn't allow her use a phone so she cannot communicate to her parents and all that so i saw that this was not just an easy case because if i even I asked her why can't you go back home she said she's from a very poor home if she goes back there her parents will chase her back she already has a child who will take care of her child and all that so i understood that there was an issue of economic disadvantage and the poverty whatever there i said okay so i spoke to a few people i went to I spoke to a few people. I didn't, because I knew that if I take the issue to welfare at that time, you know, some of these men, what they do when they come to welfare is, even if the welfare, they pay 40,000 for the child up, upkeep and the rest. Some of them will tell you that they don't have, or some even pay for like one month or two, and then they will stop. So I, I had to, to be very diplomatic about the whole issue. I had to talk to a few people and organizations I knew that could intervene. So somehow, I was I, I, I was referred to an organization that helped me set her up, like to teach her a skill. Do you understand? Like we made a, a short shelter for her, like somewhere she could stay shortly. I was able to get her parents, her, her, the address of her parents and contacts. And I contacted them. I told them, this is the situation of your daughter. And they were like, hey, she cannot come back to the house. So even we've not finished feeding her. I said, it's not an issue we are going to help her. But we also want a situation whereby you help us too. Because the man will definitely want to come back to look for her here. Do you understand? We need yes. that. We need your support in helping this lady. So somehow we were able to help her start up a business. We moved her out of there. One of those days the man wasn't around. I came with some of the people and everything, at least for the first period. And then after that, we were able to summon him to welfare and all that. And we said, okay, made him to sign on and taking, you will not, this girl will not be harmed in any way or anything, and you will provide for her. We even told him 20,000 a month, but today I don't think he did more than 5,000 in two months, and that was all we heard from him. But the lady now, at least with the help of organizations and other private donors, she has a business she's doing, and that business she's doing now has helped her. She can pay for her small rent, and her baby goes to school, but the child is under the back-to-school initiative, like enrolled in a school so she's not disturbing herself with the fear of that child you understand like the child is in that area she just for her to take care of herself and then we, we also try to make sure that she will go back to school so we're looking at sending her back to school next year so she can be able to ride jam and all that so this that is one person who's someone even if it wasn't i'm just summarizing it wasn't an easy journey but this is just a summary it wasn't an easy journey well i've also worked with other people that till now some of them, there's one case, she was badly injured. When I say badly injured, she was, in fact, a part of her body was damaged. But today, she's still standing on the fact that if she leaves the man, who will marry her? And this is somebody that is even a graduate. Hmm. So you now see that most times it has to do, as I was emphasizing on mental strength. Yes. Not everybody has them. This is a graduate now saying, who will marry me? because a part of your body was damaged. Whereas a young girl was able, after so much persuasion and everything, who didn't even go to school, who was not even that exposed, was able to pull through mentally and work with us. Whereas someone who is a graduate, very mature lady, is still stuck in abuse. Mm. 
So for me, I always say it's the mental capacity, the mental strength that determines whether the victims leave or not. Do you understand? Yes. So the whole thing is in this journey as a social worker, as a humanitarian, it's patience. I've learned to be patient. I've learned to accept my service users, my clients, as I see them. I don't judge them based on their condition. I just try to work with them. And you know, as much as you want to help, you can't force anybody. You can't force help on anybody. You just bring them to that point where they realize themselves and take appropriate decisions. Thank you so much for sharing um, some of the cases you've dealt or handled. And I hope our listeners will, will be you know, we'll understand that people differ, you know, yeah. it depends on each person's mental capacity, mental capacity and situations. Yes. And relationships. Yes. What tools can be used to help victims or survivors of abuse? When we talk about tools that could be used to help the psychosocial supports, it's counseling, economic empowerment, mental reorientation, help them to cope better with their situations. That's to face the reality of what they are in, to cope with the trauma, to overcome this trauma, help them to deal with discriminations and stigma that comes with it. It's a kind of therapy. Okay. Then there's also the, the economic empowerment for those who are, who we are economically deprived, who need a source of livelihood. You could be helping them to learn skills, or start up businesses or getting a job for them. Mental reorientation, that's reorienting the minds of these victims to overcome the emotional torture, the physical abuse they went through, to make to rebuild their confidence in themselves, to make them more aware, to be able to learn that instead of seeing life as a bus stop or a full stop coming to the end of life, making them see life as just the beginning, that there's more. They could actually overcome this phase of life and go through it, come out strong. Do you understand? Then we also have the access to gender and trauma-sensitive legal services. That's to enable these victims to rebuild their lives. There's also the social protection under the Ministry of Women Affairs and, and social development. Then you can also counsel them. There's also the referral. You could refer them to professionals, professionals in, in counseling, social workers, a lot. There's also referrals to agencies, organizations that could help them. That's in Nigeria, I know of some NGOs. I didn't, maybe I should just mention them. I don't know who is listening and who will need them. There are, there are organizations in Nigeria that handle issues of violence against women. One, there's the Clean Foundation. There's the Acts Generation. There's Baobab for Women, Women's Human Rights. There is the Ministry of Women Affairs. There's a project alert on violence against women. We have the Crime Victims Foundation Nigeria. We have the Rayua Sexual Assault Referral Center. We have the arm of NAPTIP that handles this. We have the Women Affairs and Social Development. That's the Ministry of Women Affairs. We also have these offices, these organizations in Lagos, Abuja, Edo, and Ibadan. They're not everywhere in Nigeria, but these are the few places where they are. Okay. So I think these are some of the organizations where people can be referred to. Crime Victims Foundation Nigeria, Rayua Sexual Assault Referral Center, 
the NAPTIP um, Women Affairs, Ministry of Women Affairs, Project Alert, UN Ombudsman Office, Medical Service, or Gender Focal Points. How can we create more awareness in the society as a whole? Okay, I think when you talk about awareness, first of all, for you to be aware of an issue, it means you're well educated about that issue before you can now educate some other person on it. So in creating awareness, we need to first, as advocates, be well educated on issues around domestic violence, gender-based violence, abuse of all sorts. Then we educate others on them. We also need to speak out and advocate. Wherever you find yourself, wherever you even see an abuse of any form, social media, wherever in community, speak out. Because one of the things that enables violence is silence. When you're silent, you enable it. Another thing, again, is to participate in sensitization campaigns, to go for trainings, workshops, share resources. There are lots of resources online you could share. Help victims in any way you can. And I always say, when you see women that have been stigmatized, there's something about the society that it's lately people still being aware. Most times when women see women that left their marriages, they are the ones who even talk down on them the more. It shouldn't be so. It shouldn't be so. Try to help anybody who has come out of an abusive marriage. Most times in helping women, what most people do not understand is that anybody can go through abuse. Whether you are an employed woman, you're educated, you're uneducated, it's a societal endemic. So instead of traumatizing and stigmatizing women who have been victims of abuse, try to help them in any way you can. That's what most people do not understand. It's because most times you find out that the main people who, who even stigmatize women who have gone through abuse, our fellow women. They see it like without marriage, a woman has no place in society. It shouldn't be so. It's better she's alive than being in a marriage that could take her life. So we should try to help women, not just women, victims of violence and abuse in any way we can. We should also help them to know their rights. We should also help them to know the right authorities and agencies to go to in the cases of abuse, they should know where to go to to get help, where they can report these issues to. They should, you should know how to even, even if it's the, the, the smallest place you can refer them to to get the littlest of help, it's very important. In essence, women should be educated and made more yes. self-aware yes. to rise above any form of abuse or shadows of abuse. Yes. So do you have any last words or encouragement, please? Women should know their words and value. We should speak up and stand against abuse of any sort. We shouldn't be silent. It's not something we should be silent about. This is a global issue. It doesn't just happen only in Africa. It's happening everywhere. But most importantly, there's something I always say. We should, we as women, should be highly involved. Wherever we find ourselves, is it in church, in the office, in the markets, in unions, in meetings, in societies, in our villages, we should participate and be highly involved in decision-making. We should make sure our voices are heard. You know why? 
Society is the way it is now against women and more for men because when these cultures and laws were made, women were not involved. And it is a very big risk that you as a human being is alive and someone else is making decisions for you, setting laws and policies for you. You should know that as human beings, there's always a tendency for selfishness. Such a person will make those laws to favor himself or herself first. And that's what happened with culture. When cultures were made, when laws were made, most women were not involved in the process. And that is why it seems not to favor the women. So as women, I always say, make sure your voice is heard. That culture, that tradition of saying a woman is seen and not heard should be done away with. Wherever you find yourself as a woman, in school, office, church, wherever, make sure your voice is heard in whatever is being done. Participate. Air your view. Make sure you participate in decision-making, in policies, in laws. Ensure that you participate. The era where women kept quiet and let men do things has passed. Because we cannot be on, on the part of national development or contribute to the economy and the world if we do not participate. And one of the ways to curb this cultural bias, these laws that are against women is by participating. Because when there's a woman on any board or in any meeting or wherever laws are being made and she's speaking, she will speak in the interest of women and the female gender. She will not just allow, you won't just allow men preside over you. Because of course the men, there's this, there's this thing about ego. A human being naturally wants to subdue the other. So if you are not there physically when things are being done and speaking and saying, no, this is not acceptable. I am alive, I won't take this. So as long as we're women, we are alive, we are present in any environment where laws, policies, cultures are being made, we should be able to speak in favor of ourselves. Because as human beings and, and men who have ego, they will always want to oppress the women. So the earlier we understand this, we'll be able to see why cultures that were made over time favored only the men against the women. Wow, that's quite profound. Thank you so much. In essence, women rise up, speak out, take actions. Women are better managers. If you go to blue chip companies and where you have women at the helm of affairs, yeah. they're better managed. Yes. And they bring in more profits. And we are yes. the builders of the society and the community at large. So women, wake up, rise up. Women should ensure their voices are heard. Wherever they, they find themselves, they should participate. Don't leave things to men to decide for you. Just make sure your voice is heard, your own idea, your own quota is contributed. Like, just be involved. Women should be involved. Because culture doesn't favor us because we weren't there when they were made. We need to stand up for ourselves as women. Thank you so much, uh, Chiamaka, for coming on this episode. Um, it's been a pleasure having you. Thank you so much. I uh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you.
So if you've enjoyed uh, this particular episode, kindly subscribe, comment, and leave a review. See you on our next episode. This is Grace Hopper for Raza, rising above shadows of abuse. Bye for now. Take care. What are your thoughts towards this piece? If you've got any questions or inquiries, you can get in touch rising above shadows of abuse at gmail.com or our social media platforms rising above shadows of abuse at TikTok rising above shadows of abuse, Twitter rising above abuse, YouTube rising above shadows of abuse. See you in our next episode and keep being positive. Take care. Rising above shadows of abuse. In short, Raza.